Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for joining our call this afternoon to review the um, European Commission's Fit for 55 package, which came out um, yesterday, although it feels as though we've been uh, building up to it for a very long time. Um, and the city in Brussels has really been um, awash with speculation for, um, for weeks about this. Um, so thank you for taking the time for us where over the next hour, we will be looking at the components of the package, um, understanding some of the political choices that the Commission has made, and also looking at some of the challenges it now poses to the European Parliament and to the European Council as they take forward the legislative process. I'm delighted to be joined by Edmund Adilda Boccabella, our advisor on energy and climate change. Um, thank you, Edmund for joining us, and by Giorgio Corbetta, our senior associate for energy policy in our energy practice in Brussels. Um, I'm Tom White, one of the directors of Global Council. Um, I will just start with um, one or two observations um, that really this is the um, probably the second big legislative package we've seen from the Commission um, towards its twin transitions of digital and, and green, following on from the digital proposals that we saw just before Christmas. And I think that actually the, the political stakes, if anything, are much higher for this package, given that it reaches into so many aspects of people's lives and of our economies and our industry. Um, there are will almost be no sectors of the economy that are unaffected by this package because it really looks at the heart of our production, our transport and our, uh, our commerce and trading. Um, I would say there's a one interesting thing about this um, proposal is that it's it may be the first big bang of regulation towards the the green deal but it's not the first uh, political step we saw that last year with the agreement of a uh, a net zero target by 2050 to reduce carbon emissions by by net zero um, as well as the agreement on an interim target for 2030 to reduce emissions by 55 percent but I, I tend to think about those targets as really being the New Year's resolutions, um, or as taking out the gym membership for what needs to happen over the next um, 30 years to get our economies into the kind of shape that um, citizens and politicians want it to be in. Um, I think we've had some um, investment in, in sort of equipment over the last uh, year with the big stimulus package through the Recovery and Resilience Fund, where of course a lot of money has been allocated to energy and to environmental technologies. But really this um, package is the training regime. It is setting out the, the difficult things that we need to do um, in our um, aviation sector, in our maritime sector, um, in our energy and, and industrial sectors. And so we're going to unpack those um, for you now. And perhaps initially, I would turn to Giorgio to ask, ask really, you know, what, is, what are the core elements of this package and how should we be thinking about it? Yeah, th thank you very much, Dan. So the Commission has, in fact, proposed 12 different legislations, which uh, we will go through over the next days and weeks and months. So uh, the package consists of uh, 12 measures plus a social climate fund, uh, which was the only uh, basically novelty that the commission has uh, introduced yesterday. Um, and it is organized around three main pillars. And what I'm gonna do is to basically go through uh, those measures quickly, and then we can go back to them in more detail. So the core of the package is really the review of the EU emissions trading system and its extension to maritime transport, road transport, and also buildings. So as a uh, refresher, the emission tr trading system is the the emissions trading market in the e European Union, where basically companies need to buy allowances to 
emit. And those allowances can also be bought and sold as in any other commodity market. Um, what you need to take away from the review of the EU ETS is that the number of allowances in the system will be reduced drastically and free allowances that are currently distributed to industry will be actually phased out. So this will force all businesses under the ETS, so essentially power and manufacturing, to drive down emissions over the, the next eight and a half years. In addition to that, new sectors will be also included in the EU ETS, um, which is going to increase the operational cost for those businesses. Um, also in the first pillar is the proposed carbon border adjustment mechanism or the CBAM, which will raise the cost of importing into the European Union, a set of products from countries with weaker emissions reduction policies. Um, the second pillar is about five different measures on emissions in the transport sector, um, which are essentially a, a combination of mandatory use of clean fuels in aviation and in shipping, uh, more stringent CO2 emission standards for road transport, uh, as well as the revision of energy taxation. The proposals include highly controversial measures, such as the ban on the sale of new internal combustion engine vehicles as of 2035, as well as higher taxes for basically fossil fuels, um, which will all be areas of hard negotiation between the parliament, the council, and the commission. The uh, third pillar is the review of the 2018 Renewable Energy Directive and Energy Efficiency Directive, which were both actually part of the clean energy package, um, and now actually set new and more ambitious targets. So that will be 40% for renewable energy in energy demand by 2030, and also between 36% and 39% for energy efficiency by 2030. Um, that's a, a sketched outline of how the package looks like and um, how we thought of organizing it for A, working on it in the most uh, e efficient way and B, being able to explain it to all our clients. Thank you, Giorgio. And um, I mean, clearly the emissions trading remains at the heart of how um, the EU wants to reduce emissions across the economy. And as you said, um, remove some of the sort of distortions that have been in there for you know, quite clear political reasons over the last last couple of decades since it was created. Um, I mean, Edmena Gilda, I think emissions trading is always what a lot of economists would advocate as being the best way to reduce uh, emissions, but it's not it's sometimes faced criticism in the EU for the way in which politics has led to you know exemptions, delays, and you know sometimes putting off some of the difficult decisions and difficult investments that were needed. Um, how do you think this proposal matches up to um, what we've promised about being fit for fifty five? Well, it's, it's quite an interesting proposal. You're, you're right to identify, Tom, that the European Commission sees the carbon price, having a market-based carbon price as a key driver for emissions reductions. But the Commission has also spent the last 15 years kind of toying with, with, the, with the ETS, and they've realised that they're also going to have to use regulation on the side as well. And that's why this package is so important. The ETS changes are, are quite significant because uh, they will actually be... be they will, they will signify key changes in what our economy will look like in 2030, but also heading towards that 2050 goal. Um, in particular, um, expanding the EU ETS in its current form to both um, maritime and then to remove free allowances from aviation, that's, that, that's quite a significant move. Additionally, creating an adjacent ETS, which will address road transport emissions uh, and address uh, energy performance of buildings or the emissions that our buildings uh, produce, 
that's also quite significant. Um, and then of course, there's this question of free allowances. So, and there are a number of sectors in the EU that have been recipients of free allowances of credits so that they're able to, well, their argument uh, has been that if they, if a carbon price was levied against them, then their products would become uncompetitive globally. Um, what's been really surprising, in fact, I think I think uh, I think a lot of people in Brussels, as they were reading through CBAM last night, with a cold uh, with a cold rag on their head, trying to understand what was going on between the ETS and and the carbon border adjustment mechanism, is that it looks like free allowances will still be with us at the end of this decade. Uh, and I think had you asked me on Monday, I would have I would have bet you know lunch and a bottle of wine that they wouldn't be. So I think that was quite a big surprise as a takeaway. Thanks. I think we're, you mentioned a couple of um, sort of minor political alarm bells um, in, in what you said. I mean, the first was talking about a, um, a, a new ETS for road transport. And we all know that whenever you do anything against um, that, that puts new burdens on motorists, you risk stoking a major protest. So when I was in the British government, we had um, truckers blockading oil refineries. And more recently, Emmanuel Macron tasted political mortality with the Gilets jaunes protests. So that's clearly one area of, of risk. And and the other is is obviously the, the continuation of the free allowances, which on the other hand will will come under attack when this gets to, to the European Parliament. So clearly some some challenges ahead. Um, perhaps Georgia we could come to you for an assessment of of pillar two. I thought what you were saying was was very interesting given that um, if we talk about pillar one being much more consistent measures across the economy and bringing more sectors into a horizontal instrument, actually pillar two sounds more like sort of sector by sector micromanagement. Um, what, what do you take away from this second pillar on the transport sector? Yeah, so the first question is, of course, why did the Commission actually target transport that much also compared to any other sector of the, the economy? And the answer is very, very easy. I mean, it's basically because transport is the only sector in the economy where emissions have actually grown since 1990. So the reason is clear. And the commission this time has really sought to address the issue in a comprehensive way across all the different modes of transport. So I think that there are, you know, two contentious points uh, across all the uh, all the measures uh, when it comes to actually transport. And one is when it comes to the mandate on using clean fuels for both shipping and aviation, the main question that has been actually bothering stakeholders over the last months has been the question of the mandate. And so, um, you know, what is the geographical scope of the mandate? So, where are, you know, uh, the companies that uh, have to uh, respect this mandate? And I think that, um, as for aviation and shipping as well, the 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 question has been um, how do transport and um, and aviation and shipping actually companies respond to that? Um, the Commission has initially had initially actually uh, believed that a global scope would have been the best one. Uh, but of course, that would have uh, really triggered reaction by the EU trade partners. So uh, what eventually the commission has uh, ended up has been the middle way. So actually mandating um, all companies uh, to basically account for emissions um, with respect to half of the travel between any port or airport in the European Union and any other port or airport across the globe. So this will, of course, preserve uh, trade relations with any global partner, but will also ha have an impact on how the negotiations on the carbon border 
adjustment mechanism in particular will will actually play out. Um, I think that if I have one more minute, uh, the other very contentious point when it comes to transport is the effective ban on the sale of new internal combustion engine by 2035. This is a measure which has, of course, been contested by both the automakers and by NGOs, but obviously for basically opposite reasons. So whilst the automakers believe that uh, this is too short a deadline to essentially re revolutionize their business model towards electric mobility, NGOs actually argue that such a deadline is too is to actually our way and that we need a closer one to actually make an impact towards reaching climate goals. So what is very interesting to note and will have an impact on the negotiations actually going forward is that the auto industry itself seems actually divided on the matter. So we have seen a few companies uh, establishing EV strategies ahead of other companies, uh, which will potentially offer more leverage to the commission to actually keep the 2035 target or even actually bring it forward. Yes, I, I think the political debate on, on this within the EU has only, only just begun. Um, clearly very strong positions on, on both sides and even 2035 is is not that far away for, as, as I'm sure anyone from the automotive industry on the call will know, um, that's basically two product cycles at, at most. Um, so a lot, a lot to be getting our teeth into later. I thought also what you were talking about, the question of you know, international standards and the way in which any EU rules on shipping would link to the IMO and other, other bodies that are playing a role in this is clearly going to be um, a major test of, of, of whether decisions can be reached because always when there's an international process going on, there are always useful cover for member states to, to stall and to say, let's wait, let's wait, as we've seen in, in taxation in other areas. Um, having uh, mentioned uh, taxation, Manajilda, I was going to maybe come back to, to you now to look at, at Pillar 3 and the, the headline targets on energy, which to, to me sound like the, I know, I know we said the ETS is at the heart of the package, but in some ways there is some really big challenging targets here uh, set out for energy, both around the targets themselves and how the commission expects itself to have the power to achieve them, looking at, at areas like tax. So perhaps if I can ask you, what are, what are your takeaways from, from Pillar 3? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the energy efficiency targets and the, the, the renewable energy targets are really significant. Giorgio pointed out at the top of this call that this was part of the signature package of, uh, of the Juncker Commission. Uh, and in some ways, uh, the von der Leyen Commission has, 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 is standing on their shoulders, standing on the shoulders of giants, some would say, um, and really ratcheting up those targets. 40% uh, renewable energy by in the energy mix by 2040 is, is really significant. Uh, it matches some of the targets that have been put out earlier with, with various strategies for offshore renewable energy, but it's clear that the European Commission wants to make sure that our energy sources are uh, as renewable as possible and as clean as possible. Uh, the same thing for the Energy Efficiency Directive. What's really interesting, and, and, and we've been talking about this a lot, is just like transport is the only sector where emissions keep rising, energy efficiency is the only target which the European Union has failed to meet so far in its climate ambition agenda. So ensuring that it has um, a binding energy efficiency target will really kind of ratchet up the seriousness of what the Commission is trying to achieve. Last thing is energy taxation. This will be extremely challenging, uh, to say the least. Uh, those of us that work in the Brussels sphere know that uh, for taxation uh, directives to be updated, they require unanimity. Uh, and we're talking about unanimity on a set of, uh, a set of regulations that will essentially uh, change 
permanently change the way that fossil fuels are assessed. Uh, that will have significant implications for a lot of member states and not just, it certainly won't be, I don't think it will be a north-south divide at all in fact, I think it will mean that a lot of member states will have to really have a long hard look at the sorts of energy mixes that they have, how their energy is used and then how consumers, what's the sort of deal that they're giving to consumers and that will, that will be a significant change uh, for that will be a significant change for, for for the commission going forward. What does it mean for the parliament and the council? I mean, the, the, we know that the next two years will be jam packed with negotiations. Um, uh, we know that that there'll be there'll be a lot of horse trading around Schumann for sure, um, and lots of people will be will be meeting to have informal informal chats in side streets and at coffee shops, um, and they really will have to work on on getting consensus and alignment. Uh, you'll also have to have a significant amount of investment to be able to support uh, the sorts of initiatives and the sorts of targets that we've put down. And that investment needs to happen really quickly. Where in July of 2021, um, companies, frankly, should be looking to uh, looking at the renewable energy uh, target and the energy efficiency target rather than waiting two years to find out exactly what, uh, what the legislation says, this, these proposals should be kind of seen as the green light. If you need more of an impetus to, to invest in renewable energy projects or to invest in assets that you already have to increase your energy efficiency, um, that those, those sorts of, 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 of levies will be pulled um, even harder going forward. I think the the horse trading element is the is the really interesting part for me when we look at what might be um, uh, you know we, we clearly have this as a new proposal that needs to be scrutinized we'll have counter proposals um, we'll have alternative texts um, the interesting thing for me about the deal making around this package is that it looks like a, a grand bargage of the package as a whole and so the trade-offs will almost be between dossiers rather yeah. than within them in the way that we're used to, where you can have you know, a set of um, sticks and carrots, call it what you want, within one dossier that essentially the, the presidency or the rapporteur in the parliament can sort of keep in their negotiating box. Whereas here we can see you know, a proposal for a carbon border adjustment mechanism essentially being traded off with much more strict approaches to free allowances or to um, bringing in, in additional sectors. Um, at, at the same time, we have um, support for vehicle charging infrastructure being traded off against the um, uh, essentially signaling of banning of internal combustion engines to give the car makers a little bit of a little bit of support um i mean wh where do you see that potentially um playing out or or potentially breaking down as we go into the um into the negotiations. I mean, there there are going to be a, a lot of really really good fights to have. I think um, between between various parties coming forward. Um, we would if you if we start just with with uh, the renewable energy directive. I mean, for sure, in in some ways, this directive is a bit of an entree or an amuse bouche before the Commission releases the decarbonised gas package. I expected the Commission to be a little bit more bold. Uh, I thought they would they they would perhaps signal have more signals on hydrogen in saying that there, there's a definition of what green hydrogen will look like uh, and, and that that will be a, an example of one piece of legislation that will be used as another piece of legislation kind of as they as they go through of course the risk of that is is um, it, that carries a, a great amount of risk because what could end up happening is that both the council and the parliament decide to be uh, quite conservative in their approach it, you were right to point out as well that there, there are a number of other ones that the the carbon border adjustment mechanism and the ets free allowances thing i, I find it really interesting although i understand why they're separated from a legal point of view of course the free allowances is a mechanism of the ETS so of course it would have to be amended within the ETS uh, but they're so intrinsic to what a carbon border adjustment mechanism will look like the timing and most importantly making sure that it's WTO compliant you can't have it both ways if we still have free allowances in 2035 then we won't have a carbon border adjustment mechanism that's WTO compliant so either the commission is hoping that there will be some serious movement in the negotiations there 
or alternatively, they're, they're, they're taking a different route and perhaps backing that a dispute resolution process in the WTO won't be able to come in time before uh, before the issue is, is, is resolved because uh, free allowances are phased out. There are some uh, some of the dates that have been uh, that have been proposed. Giorgio mentioned the the uh, internal combustion engine vehicle ban uh, was the sale. Sorry, of internal combustion engine vehicles will be banned from 2035 onwards. Interesting that that was still built under the Fit for 55 package, considering that this was meant to be all about 2030. And there were quite a number of um, there were quite a number of elements that seem to that that are pushed out to 2035, 2040 even. Uh, we saw that as well in, in some of the um, some of the references for example LNG and shipping um, so that will be that these will all be significant elements uh, that will be used in in the various heavy negotiating periods some of that will happen within the parliament where we'll see the parliament really wrestling with different concepts but there's other areas like you know, LNG, which will be a big issue in the council. Uh, we know, for example, that France, we, we've heard we, we've heard all of the member states um, uh, positioning on the 10T regulation. France couldn't have been clearer that they don't see LNG as a part of as a part of our transport fuel future. And yet, uh, and yet, it's it, it's still it's still on the cards for until 2040. So again, these are the sorts of things that will be argued about and, and like I said, horse traded on um, in and around Schumann in, in, in the next two years. Fascinating. And of, and of course, you, you mentioned that this is not the end of the story for, for Green Deal legislation. We're also expecting the gas decarbonisation package in the autumn. And Georgia, perhaps I could ask for your assessment. In, in some ways, looking at this package from, from yesterday, it appears that the Commission is betting very heavily on electrification for um, decarbonizing uh, particularly in cars but also in in other areas with the the high renewable targets how do you square that with all the attention that Franz Timmermans has put recently on hydrogen as a you know, I don't think he calls it a silver bullet but he goes pretty close to it um, and and is that is that just a factor of you know we wait for that package to come out or does it reveal that one side or other has won inside the commission? Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting question and a question that most uh, of the stakeholders working on energy on the, you know, uh, the intersection between energy and mobility are asking actually themselves. I think that uh, there is a, a technical question and the political question. When it comes to the technical question, of course, if you look at mobility um, and road transport in particular, the answer as to whether electric or hydrogen powered vehicles will be in the future has already been answered in a way. If, if you look at what the automakers have actually done or the past five years. So we see now and we've been seeing over the, the, the past years, many automakers bet in heavily on electric vehicles. This poses also a question as to the infrastructure. So, and, and this is a kind of chicken and uh, an egg and chicken question as to, you know, whether uh, the recharging infrastructure network should go actually first or whether um, incentives for actually buying electric cars should be uh, provided first. So um, the uh, alternative fuels infrastructure directives, if you if we if you look back at the package, tries to provide answers to that. So electric vehicles charging is going to be one of the largest investment buckets when it comes to infrastructure uh, for the European Union over the next 20 years. So I think that, um, yes, the commission is betting on uh, electric vehicles, in particular for road transport, um, in a consistent way across the package. Um, and this is also, of course, to, to be seen, as Amanda Gilda was saying, um, 
together with the the potential ban of the you know internal combustion engine vehicle as we know it now um when it comes to hydrogen however um there are many stakeholders uh, out there in the european union uh which of course are betting as heavily on uh hydrogen in particular for transport as a way to make clever use of the assets of the natural gas assets that we have been accumulating over the past 50 years so there's also a question of stranded assets as we were discussing on a pod a few months back so i think that the uh, approach of the commission is a rather balanced one so uh ev is uh definitely um one of the way forward so the electrification of road transport um, is really something that the European Commission sees happening in the short term. However, when it comes to hydrogen, the potential applications go beyond road transport. And actually, uh, if we stick to that, maybe um, heavy duty vehicles uh, will will possibly make use of uh, hydrogen. That's one of the options and also if you look at uh, the choices of uh, basically trucks makers in the European Union but also there are considerable applications for shipping and aviation so to answer your question I think that um, it's a conundrum that the commission is trying to unpack but uh, there are still many open questions going forward okay so it, it I suppose to sum up, it's that it's almost like they have picked a winner, but they're not ruling out having several winners. Um, if um, if I think about how it often works at my my son's sports day, um, so <laughs> hydrogen has not been um, ruled out. It's just that we've exactly we've, the, the questions have been posed on electrification, and so the commission has has answered those this time around. Um, I'm conscious we've had quite a lot of questions from um, people in the audience. I did have a few more things I wanted to ask you myself about how the um, package has landed with various stakeholders, but perhaps we'll come back to those um, and pick up a couple of these questions because some of them are, are very important. So, um, I mean, the question about the, the timelines for when we will see the inter-institutional negotiations take place, um, I'm sure, I don't know, Georgia and Georgia, you will be able to give a bit more detail than I can, but I, I do know that the Slovenian presidency has said that the 55% uh, Fit 55 packages is its priority. We've heard that from the Environment Ministry and we've heard it from the Economy Ministry. So we can take it as being um, not, not just someone's pet project, but a definite government priority. Realistically, in six months, you know, I think you can get to the point of having potentially um, some, some, some general approaches in the council. But of course, there will be a question of, you know, which, which council really has the final say um, between transport, energy, competitiveness and, and elsewhere. And it's going to be quite interesting to see how the informal council is used in, I think it's in Kranja in September, where they will be trying to bring together the, the transport and the energy elements in a way that the TTE council has historically Sort of struggled to do really bringing trying to bring out that this is a, a transport related package as much as an energy one um so if they give it that priority and devote working groups to it you could see potentially a general approach by the end of the year but i think it's much more likely that we will actually start to see the contours of agreement emerge during the french presidency um particularly on areas like the um tax package where just the sheer logistics of logging all of member states objections will take quite a lot of effort and and time um, and won't have quite the same um, pressure on decision making that we saw on the 2030 targets where of course the EU had to make a decision ahead of the COP, the COP summit. Um, I would say in the Parliament uh, we'll, we'll get a better idea um, when when the rapporteurs and so on are allocated but it but again I would be think we'd more likely looking at next year for um, you know reports and positions to be to be voted through but um, Georgia and Manajilda very very keen to hear your views on that. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's a the the Slovenian presidency only has a limited to capacity to the, in which it can really kind of um, uh, exert pressure. And I always feel sorry for presidencies that take the second half of the year. They always get a great summer party to kick off, but then there's a summer break and things don't kind of really get moving till September. And by that time, they're almost halfway through. Um, I think you'll be you also will what will be really interesting will be how the two presidential elections in the member states play out. You're not going to get any agreement before we know who will be leading and what the German government will look like and who will be leading and what the French government will look like. I mean, we have ideas, but we need will actually need both of those parties to be to be well and truly installed before decisions start to get made. So I think realistically, we'll start to see some intra-institutional institutional negotiations on on some of the easier measures, um, albeit uh, I think some of the funding measures might be might be um, elements that 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 could be passed earlier on, uh, perhaps even some of the measures relating to uh, the amendments to Lulu CF, so land use, land use change, and forestry. Uh, but I think on the on the on other areas, um, you're you really are going to see uh, quite a long, drawn out fight, and you'll be looking to to having will be a challenge for the presidencies. I think in particular going forward to really be able to get a negotiating mandate. We saw the German presidency struggle to do that, especially with the European climate law. And if a German presidency can't get the entire European Union to agree to the climate law and the 20, 2030 targets, um, you're going, you know, it, it, it kind of it concerns me if I'm really frank about whether or not um, presidencies are going to be able to kind of do the sort of whipping that's required to uh, to get to get agreement. Um, and and uh, so that so I think that's that's that could be problematic. Yeah, I would say two quick things in addition to that. The first one is that if we look uh, uh, back. Uh, to the past, I think that probably the only examples that we have that could relate to uh, how complicated the negotiations on the Fit for 55 will be um, are the negotiations on the clean energy package back uh, in 2016. Um, so I think that there, it was also uh, the presidency of a relatively small country, which actually managed to uh, push the negotiation forward and to actually achieve an agreement by the end of the year. Uh, that was, of course, Estonia. I think that now, of course, the situation is very, very different, different governments, different people. But I think that I wouldn't rule out um, surprises in terms of how fast the things could move on. The second thing is that, uh, of course, um, when it comes to uh, the package as such, as I mentioned, I was saying it's not easy to actually pick an easy one, a, an easy kind of file uh, that everyone could agree on rather quickly. So I think that, uh, of course, there are a, f a few ones. Um, the little CF, it's possibly the first one that comes to mind. Uh, but I think that um, when it comes to the the structure of the the negotiations. Uh, I think that th that possibly the one um, that's going to be not only the most contentious, but we're we're going to see uh, the most kind of clash even within the council is probably is probably going to be uh, the energy tax directive, um, and that will probably be left as the the last one as everything else is going to have an impact on tax and also how you tax actually fuels will uh, have an impact on cost we will have an impact on also the the carbon cost of different energy uses so if i can say you know one thing that you know is relatively uh reasonable to think it's gonna uh happen is that in the grand scheme of the negotiations, the tax directive is possibly going to be kept as the last one. Well, that, that, would also, that would certainly make sense. Um, I'm glad that you both mentioned 
Lulu CF because I'm never sure how to pronounce the acronym and you both did it that way. So um, I was going to come back to that because we've had a question from one of our attendees around will there be accommodation for carbon offsets, which of course is is one of the principles guiding the rules for, for land use and forestry. Could I perhaps ask you for your for your take on what the Commission has has put forward here? Um, I think I think that there is actually also a wider argument to be had, some of which will, will take uh, which will take place at the end of this year at COP26, especially when it comes to um, how uh, carbon credits and, and how carbon credits emerge as a financial product, how they're going to be used. Uh, there's no doubt that the European Commission has uh, a serious decision to make, or well, not just the European Commission, uh, the whole European Union has a serious decision to make about how we approach forests. Uh, and that will be making sure that we have sustainable forests. So one of the elements of this package, which were, which was really interesting uh, to see, is it were announcements on the limitations on uh, forests, which can be used for renewable energy, and and the creation of what will be you know no-go zones. Uh, that will be quite significant. That shows also that the Commission not only is 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 creating and accommodating uh, the development of of carbon credits generally, but also ensuring that uh, the, that Europe is able to maintain on a long-term basis uh, many of the forests which which will be which will be significant in being able to support um, uh, sustainable land use going forward yes, when it, certainly when, when you think about um, some of the countries that will have concerns about the package as a whole some of them do have large large forest resources to um this will to be on the table this will be super problematic for someone like Finland, for example, uh, Sweden. There will be that it, it will it will be. We we often talk in the office about about the north south divide, but you know this that there will be certain different sorts of cracks that will emerge where you'll you'll certainly see different regions or countries that might not be regionally associated, but for various geographical features will will, will be emphasising on uh, emphasising and holding on to different elements. So it's it's not clear cut at all, but it but you know land use just as with with the other initiatives as it will be it will be extremely significant. Thank you. Perhaps um, just, just to sort of get through uh, more of these questions in the time available. Um, the one we have at the top of the list is pretty straightforward to answer, I guess, um, which um, in that we don't need to give too much explanation, but what do you think is most in danger of being watered down? Um, we talked a bit about the low hanging fruit before about the maybe the social fund as being the easier ones to agree. What, what looks like might need to be watered down to get it through? Yeah, that's that's a, a very interesting question, and I and I think that there's a few which could be a good candidate as to that. Um, but on the other hand, many of the the proposals in the package uh, will be heavily supported by different stakeholders. So I think it's going to boil down to what the member states actually think are their, their, their essentially priorities going forward. So I think that um, if, you, if you look at the CO2 emissions standards for cars, and, and I'm only going to mention that, of course, there's more that we could be discussing. I think that there's two things. Um, one is the actual content of the proposal, but the other one is as well the 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 time lag. So the 2035 uh, deadline, you know, by which to ban the sale of you know new internal um, um, internal combustion engine vehicles is. Um, very hard uh, for many automakers uh, to keep. So I would say that's probably one of uh, the bargaining chips that uh, NGOs and progressive members of the parliament will um, consider uh, using basically because the pressure on behalf of the member states uh, and industry in general is going to be extremely hard. So that's that's my two cents. Would you agree, Edmund Is that the one that's um, um, most at risk? I mean, 
I think I think we I think our I think our interests really really show here more than anything. In in some ways, um, when you ask the question, the, the first thing I thought of well, what was watered down too much? And I've, I said this earlier. Look, the free allowances issue I think is too watered down. I don't I think it's I think it's I, I don't think it's it's not it's nowhere near as progressive as as I would have expected. And I know I've already said that, so um, so I, I'll press on to something else. What I'm hoping doesn't get watered down uh, definitions of hydrogen in particular, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm hoping that the uh, that the renewable energy target and the energy efficiency targets. I hope that they stay nice and high. Um, the reason is, frankly, because having high targets like this will in fact incentivize a huge amount of investment. Uh, and those sorts of investments will, will really support a series of regions, not just regions in transition, um, which of course need to, uh, need to, we need to make sure that we have a, a climate, a just, a, a climate justice and, and, and a really, a, a really effective skills transition. But I really think this, the, those two targets in particular will modernize the European economy. They will be, they will almost be the, the markers that, that open the door to what will be our new um, modern, modern EU economy, especially on, uh, on energy efficiency. Anyone that's, that's any of my clients who are on the call, you've heard me talk about many times how I believe we're on the cusp of energy efficiency and the internet of things finally getting to that sweet point where, where we'll really be able to achieve a huge amount of emissions reductions, but we'll be able to see our energy use being as efficient as possible because we'll be able to make better decisions about how we use applications. So I'm hoping that, that, that those two elements aren't watered down. Um, sometimes they're easy to shoot down as impossible or we're not ready for them yet, but we're not meant to be ready for them yet. We're meant to be, we're meant to set targets that are difficult uh, so that we can, in, so that we can have our creative European brains wrapping themselves around it and, and being able to achieve these targets. Thanks. Well, I mean, your your point there about what is at the sort of uh, cutting edge of what is achievable is perhaps a, a, a hook for coming to the question we've had about sustainable finance, which I think the Commission's approach to sustainable finance received many criticisms, but one was that it was very binary about, you know, what is absolutely leading leading in terms of performance and emissions reduction and that can be counted as sustainable whereas anything else was treated as unsustainable um, and, and of course we've seen a, a bit of movement from the commission in the last couple of weeks talking about um, the importance of transition and you know potentially opening the door to treating perhaps activities and companies and regions that are on a journey as as being as as deserving of finance um, could we perhaps answer this question about how sustainable finance links with this with this plan if it if it links at all oh yeah absolutely i mean a lot of these sorts of projects um, if you're if and and you you identified and I'll I'll just I'll just repeat it the misconception that the definitions within the the, the EU taxonomy um, precluded transitional uh, transitional activities. Of course, they didn't preclude transitional activities, but a transitional activity is not necessarily a sustainable activity. So they what they what it set out was the endpoint. Now. The targets that I talked about just before, the ones that I think are really, really integral to creating a, what our modern European society will look like, what our the, the, the sort of economy that our children will live in and our children's children. Um, uh, being able to use the taxonomy to invest, using the taxonomy definitions, which clearly lay out how what is a renewable project? How can renewable projects be considered um, be considered uh, um, sustainable? Uh, where does energy efficiency lie? How does that work towards climate mitigation? The really good thing is that on when it comes to the sustainable finance element and the EU taxonomy. We've actually given ourselves pretty good structure to go into, okay, well, what are the targets? What are we going to achieve? Where are the projects that, we're, that we need to start investing in? So I'm 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 quite I'm quite optimistic there. I think that I think that the work, the tough work that's been done over the last five years in, in the area of sustainable finance, will certainly be paying off when uh, when investors are, are starting to make decisions about the projects that they that they invest in you know now at first it was it was the sustainable finance um, uh, targets which would which would have been an incentive now we've also got clear targets coming from legislation so I think I think those two will will, will start to back um, back some really interesting projects going forward 
Yeah. I just one very quick thought and it's and it's not to add anything. I think it's very it's very, very comprehensive. I think, you know, this this question actually shows the challenge of making sense of everything. And of course, you know, um, it is very challenging as well for the European Commission. We mentioned that, you know, if we take into account the big picture, uh, the Fit for 55, of course, is not in a vacuum. Uh, there's these sustainable finance on, on, on the one hand, all the files that uh, will come through that war streams, as well as uh, the gas decarbonization package towards the end of this year. So I think that uh, uh, our, our job, and that's also what makes it interesting now and also going forward is to try and make sense of these kind of different trends. And I think that Hermann uh, and Gilda mentioned a, um, a very um, effective and inspired trend that we're going to see and we've been seeing for a, a number of months now. So the discussions now on how sustainable finance in the European Union will actually develop, will need to also to take into account the specific measures uh, and the negotiations actually on uh, the, the broader fit for 55. Thanks, Joseph. So, I mean, I, I actually don't envy the person in the commission who has to try and keep track of all the different strands of different proposals and making sure they're all pulling in the same direction and limiting the sort of unintended contradictory consequences. Um, we have a couple of questions that are, that are that are probably a bit too detailed to handle on this call, but I would like to say thank you very much for asking them. Um, but I, I think, for example, looking at the industrial ecosystems is something that we probably need to do in a in a standalone discussion. So please do make contact with with one of us. Um, and we're very happy to set up a, uh, a discussion offline. Um, if, if I perhaps try to um, pick up on one of the questions that certainly has a lot of interest for anyone outside the EU. Um, it's this question about the consequences of a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Now, clearly, we know that impacts on third countries do play a role in uh, commission thinking. We saw that uh, just this week on the in the decision to delay a proposal on the uh, digital services tax following some pressure from, from Washington. Um, and clearly there will be pressure coming from a lot of different countries on the um, proposal for the CBAM. Um, the question is specifically about economically underdeveloped countries, but perhaps I could ask you, um, what do you think will be the response from from the EU's trading partners, ranging from the you know, countries in the neighbourhood, such as as Turkey, through to larger uh, countries further away, like the US and China, and of course, you know those those countries that currently benefit from the EU's anything but arms uh, tariff free regimes. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, <laughs> I think for a lot of countries, the, the proposal of the carbon border adjustment mechanism in the beginning was a little bit of a shock. I've talked about many, I've talked about it many times. It was it was in, initially meant to be a punishment for the Trump administration for pulling out of the Paris Agreement and a warning shot across the bow for China to remind them that they needed to stay committed uh, to an emissions, to, to an emissions reductions agenda. What's really interesting is those, the, the initial kind of targets and the, the reasons why this was meant to be a remedy have in some ways dissolved or dispersed uh, the Biden administration and, and I, our, um, some of our very bright colleagues over at Bloomberg during their, their sustainability summit, uh, they had a really interesting interview with Gina McCartney who was sheepishly positive about uh, a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And she said, well, it's not off the table now. I mean, and a US administration, even a Biden administration earlier this year wouldn't have let those words come out of their mouth. So I, th so I thought that was really interesting. Um, the reaction the reaction for, for, for other countries, which has been kind of what we expected, of course, Australia has come out and, um, and said that they're highly concerned about it. So I think as a country that hasn't invested in, in, uh, in progressive emissions reductions in any other countries, um, uh, industrialized economies that, that have, refused to, um, have, have refused to really put emissions reductions as at the center point of their economic development, they will pay the price. For the EU's neighborhood, of course, that, that what, what will be effective 
the effect that the carbon border adjustment mechanism will have will hit countries like Turkey and uh, and the Ukraine. And uh, the, these are the countries that we trade with quite regularly within our neighbourhood that we want we want to make sure that we can see their prosperity. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how the EU uh, deals with that going forward, because I don't think um, I don't think there is, I, you know, the, the concern that we will lose business to uh, Turkey and the Ukraine because of a carbon price, in my opinion, is, isn't really a, a strong one. That's not the reason why, uh, why companies decide to offshore their manufacturing. Uh, it's because of other associated costs. And there's the same sort of thing when it comes to developing countries. Will the European Commission be, in one hand, investing in emissions, trans, in emissions reductions um, uh, apply, applications and technologies in developing countries, but then in the other hand, be punishing them if they're not up to scratch? Uh, what will the what will the standards look like? What what some of the benchmarks that we saw or the default standards that we've seen could be ten percent worse than 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 what um, what EU manufacturing standards are. I mean, this could be this could be quite significant uh, for a series of countries. From the structure that we saw, though, the initial part will be focusing on reporting. So perhaps this is all just a big data collection exercise in the vein of um, if you don't report, we might tax you, which could be very interesting uh, as these economies nonetheless will have to also be reporting their emissions for, uh, for other global initiatives like the Paris Agreement and the global stock take, which is about to take place. So it will be interesting to see how the Commission collects data, how they're going to use that data, and then what that will mean for those, those really precious trade relationships. Um, of, of course, that, that we're talking there about the sort of first and second order impacts, and not not even getting to what happens if we see retaliatory measures introduced. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, one of the things that has struck me since the Biden administration came in in the in the US is that um, it's it's actually quite hard to unwind new trade barriers once you've introduced them because you sort of get used to them and you get hooked on them. Yeah. Um, and and it takes a while to, to to remove them. So those who think that this CBAM is being introduced purely as a um, as, a, as a threat or as a behavioural change tool, um, may, may, be, may be disappointed if it comes in and, and sticks for good. If, um, I was a, if I was an international trade lawyer um, advising the Australian government and, and you know, the, the European Union saying, well, it'll be WTO compliant because we say it will be WTO compliant, I'd be writing in my advice, kind of rubbing my hands together saying, well, we'll see about that, see you in dispute resolution. Uh, and that's not a pathway that the European Union necessarily wants to go down. I think um, it, it, it risks, you know, we've, we've just seen the immense amount of energy and money that went into the, the aviation dispute over the last um, last couple of decades between Boeing and Airbus. Um, exactly. Giorgio, I'm conscious we're almost out of time, but we did have a quite an interesting question about um, transport electrification. Perhaps if I could ask you just to, just to respond on that. Yes, yeah, so um, uh, this colleague is asking whether uh, the target on uh, EV charging infrastructure uh, is low. And I think it's a very interesting question. Of course, it's a matter of perspective, so it depends, uh, you know, who you are. But I think that um, what we can say, uh, and we've been actually discussing this with our colleagues over the last uh, couple of days is that there is a you know rather large difference between EV charging infrastructure and hydrogen powered vehicle charging infrastructure. And when it comes to EV charging infrastructure, it's a technology which is relatively more mature, so EV charges statisticians have been around for longer. Um, it's, you know, easily scalable because it's been done for a, a number of years. Uh, and so what I think we can say is that um, EV charging uh, infrastructure uh, might require less support with respect to hydrogen recharging infrastructure. So of course, in general and in absolute terms, uh, higher targets equal um, quicker rollout. However, uh, it's not for EVs, it's not as, as critical. Um, one more thing we can say is that 
AFED is going to be in any case revised in 2026. So there's also this kind of dimension uh, to take into account. And essentially 2026 is only less than five years ahead. True, we are, we are promising to do a lot of these things at speed. I'm conscious we're out of time. Thank you very much to everyone who's who's joined us. Um, hopefully we've covered the ground you were most interested in, but please do contact us directly um, if there were any issues you'd like us to go into more depth with you on either the energy team here or our sustainability team or indeed our financial services team if it's more about sustainable finance. Um, one of my, my big takeaways from this afternoon is that um, the Commission has clearly not shied away from picking some fights, um, but some of those depend on some assumptions about what happens in politics in the member states, in particular in Germany and France, that may not actually play out. So we do need to keep watching this very closely as to how the dynamics shift. Um, but clearly, the this is Ursula von der Leyen and, and her deputy, Franz Timmermans, really setting out their stall for what, what they believe is necessary. Um, and we are going to see a huge amount of political capital invested in these 12 dossiers as we move forward. So, well, sorry, 13, including the, the new social fund. But um, thanks everyone for their, their time and we look forward to follow-up discussions. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.